think over the decades that I've been doing this, what are all of the things we wish we could do? What are the things mm -hmm. that students hate? And how could we make those the things the students love? And what are the things that we as educators wish we could do for the students, but can't because of logistics, because of budgetary constraints, because of approvals, because of logistics? And how do we make all that happen? And that's what these new technologies do. They hand you a magic wand and allow you to do things that are miraculous. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hi, Brad. Hi, Tiffany. Thrilled to be here. We are really excited for this podcast today. We feel that it is especially honoring of our team member who's behind the scenes, Mike Jones, who is always trying to talk to us about media technology, immersive technology. And we try to keep up with him, but just don't speak the same language. Our guest today, Mike found for us, and they do speak the same language. So we're excited to honor him by having this conversation, but also to honor the higher ed community who needs to hear a different angle, as we were talking about in the pre-show, on this subject. So John Gress has over 30 years of experience in motion picture, visual effects, immersive media technology, production, and education. He has done research, development, consulting, and training for VFX, immersive, real-time, 3D, CGI, 360-degree, virtual reality, augmented reality, stereoscopic 3D, photogrammetry, dense mapping, 3D scanning, 3D printing, motion tracking, motion control, motion capture, live action, real-time animation, game engine VFX integration for motion picture, TV, internet, media, marketing, and advertising, communication, and education since 1986. John was previously the academic director for the Digital Animation and Visual Effects School at Universal Studios Orlando, Florida, and has trained thousands of filmmakers and visual effects artists from all over the world who have gone on from his training to secure jobs in top visual effects companies and have worked on blockbuster movies and award-winning television series such as The Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, James Bond, Star Wars, The Walking Dead, and many, many more. John is a member of the Visual Effects Society, the Virtual World Society, and the Themed Entertainment Association. He previously chaired the Global VRAR Association Universities and Colleges Committee and is a published Pearson Higher Education author and regular writer and columnist for motion picture and visual effects industry trade publications. John has produced, directed, and supervised hundreds of motion picture, television, VFX, and interactive multimedia and immersive productions since 1995 and is now busy running his newest endeavor, the Metaverse Construction Company. We're thrilled to welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast, John Gress. Welcome, John. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We start our show with some getting to know you questions. We've got some fun ones planned. Brad, if you could get us started. Sure. John, I want you to think back to your first engagement with computers and technology. How and when did that occur? Well, Luckily, my family were kind of early adopters of, of technology, and I think my first encounter with a computer was the TRS-80, 
where we had to literally, uh, I think, I don't know if it had like eight kilobytes of memory or something, and you had to literally program everything into it. And then when you turn the computer off, whatever you had done was gone. Shortly thereafter, I think we had a Commodore 64 where it was my first encounter with trying to do graphics. And we literally, my brother and I sat there and programmed every pixel to create this little concert scene. And it was literally every pixel you programmed. Pixel one was white and pixel two was yellow and pixel, and you just went through wow. and did every pixel. So it was this giant spreadsheet of pixel code to create this one really horrible 8-bit <laughs> computer gamey looking. So so I got I got my start doing really tedious <laughs> computer stuff very quite young. <laughs> Amazing. Look how far we've come. Look how far we've come, indeed. We heard that you shot your first 8mm footage at 4 years old, <laughs> and we also dug up some pictures from years gone by of you teaching and directing in studio and on location. What was the toughest location shoe you were ever on and why? Interesting question. I'd say the toughest location shoot, interestingly, wasn't actually what you would think to be a tough location shoot. We had two back-to-back shoots. We were shooting in the middle of the state of Florida the first day, and it was this excavation pit that was standing in for a desert. And it was very hot in the day and very cold at night. And we were about three days, four days shooting at this excavation site. And we were all just completely exhausted. So we did this shoot. It was out in the middle of nowhere. We had cast and crew and that whole kind of thing where it's a pretty big production out in the middle of nowhere. The following day, we had to shoot in Tampa St. Pete area on boats. Florida gets to 100 degrees easy on an average day in the summer. So we had just had that long shoot for for three days in the desert-ish area. And then we were on this boat just completely exposed out into the elements. And we were baking and it was so hot. (laughs) And then by the time the sun set, the temperature just plummeted down to where we were like freezing. Mm -hmm. And we had about three people nearly collapsing from exposure to the elements. So surprisingly, being out on a boat in Tampa Bay turned out to be one of the hardest and most difficult shoots that we've ever encountered. We were all just suffering. <laughs> you, you would think it would be a nice boat ride, but... <laughs> Never again. We would do it. We do, and we have done it again. <laughs> okay. Not, not Never with mind. The yeah, not with the pre-roll. Yeah, going out on a boat in Tampa Bay, not a, not a bad thing. John, we've seen some pictures of you strapped with an electric guitar. And actually, we can see one on the wall behind you. Hobby, Mm -hmm. prop, or something more? I used to be a professional musician. I've I've been a musician since I was a little kid. My two things that I've always done pretty much my entire life are movies and and music. I've found that they're very synergistic, and they they just seem to go very well together. Mm. Speaking of music, then, you get to pick the music artist and location that they perform in. Who is it, and where are you? Oh, wow. Great question. I would say 100% Pink Floyd, anywhere where they would like to perform. I, I really love the idea of in the metaverse doing a virtual concert where mm-hmm. there were actually where everybody can actually get to experience that show mm-hmm. live. And virtually is probably the only way that you would get those band members together in the same probably, place. <laughs> probably. That's that's true. <laughs> Okay, let's get serious. There are a lot of roles in and around production, and you started early. 
How did you land primarily in visual effects? Interesting story is that visual effects and motion picture pretty much started hand in hand at the same time. Some of the very primordial visual effects artists, if you will, or motion picture creators at the time were uh, magicians back in the early days. So as a little kid, you tell the sort of funny story where I kind of borrowed my dad's camera when I was four and he found what I had shot on it afterwards and they figured out it was me from the height of the that (laughs) that it was shot at on the on the film but I quickly became enamored with shooting movies and doing stop motion animation and doing little dioramas and shooting creating model miniatures and Ray Harryhausen was big when I was a kid so I was immediately drawn to special effects I was creating model spaceships and blowing them up with firecrackers. And really, anybody who knows me to this day, it was funny. I I wound up a couple of years ago meeting with a friend of mine from childhood that I grew up with. And his wife said, wow, everything you're doing is like really interesting. And my friend said, yeah, this is exactly what he's done his entire life. When he was a little kid, he was doing the same thing. So it just kind of flowed naturally. It was more of a natural progression from making movies. And really, fast forward to today... It's all the same to me. This is about creating worlds, creating immersive environments, and we just do it with the tools that we have. And at the time, it was film and music. And I remember sitting in my house growing up. It was a a really small house, and we had like two bedrooms that were connected by a little hallway that you could shut the doors. So it was this tiny little six-foot by three-foot dark area. And we would set up the projector and all the little two-minute eight millimeter movie reels that we had and I, I would record music on the piano and, or guitar and put it on a tape recorder and try to press play at both of them at the same time to make sure that they look like they were going together so it was all sort of just a natural progression in creating immersive environments creating stories story is is big for me it reminds me of the the fablemans and steven spielberg as a young boy making amazing films using reel-to-reel and all kinds of things. We were doing that. I, I won't say that mine were as good as his were, <laughs> but, but we tried. We tried. <laughs> but how awesome it is to, to think about the things you loved to do as a kid yeah. is what now you're still now doing for your career. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the thing that a lot of people are, you know, AI is a hot button for a lot of people, mm-hmm. a lot of artists and and, and people these days very concerned with the technology. And I find that the technology, you have two ways to go. You can become a dinosaur and cling on to the previous technologies, Mm -hmm. or you can adapt and evolve to the new technologies. And I think that for the people who are really digging their heels in and saying, we're not going to adapt and we're really staunchly against this, First of all, I have a saying, and it's least tolerant equals worst offender. And that typically <laughs> typically is true. The people who are really staunchly against the technologies that are advancing are usually so because it directly affects their comfort level of where they're at. And those people are usually the ones who are totally fine with adapting to the technology that replaced the people before them. So the reason that this isn't really like an off-topic thing, it comes down to like with visual effects, this is sort of a natural progression for me. I'm not attached to the tools. I'm attached to the storytelling. So whatever storytelling 
tools allow us to tell the story. And over the past, which I'm sure we'll get to, the past couple of decades where I've been very heavily into education and using those tools for education, it's like a, it's like a, someone handing you a magic wand, being able to mm. take a student, and, I, and I'll give you like just a little example. I don't know if we're going to go here later, but for film education, I try to think over the decades that I've been doing this, what are all of the things we wish we could do? What are the things mm. that students hate? And how could we make those the things the students love? And what are the things that we as educators wish we could do for the students, but can't because of logistics, because of budgetary constraints, because of approvals, because of logistics? And how do we make all that happen? And that's what these new technologies do. They hand you a magic wand and allow you to do things that are miraculous. Film history, probably, and I can't say this across the board. I don't know if everybody feels this way. For me, this was kind of one of the, boring parts of learning although i loved the film history learning it in school was not entertaining it was yeah. not fun it was just kind of watching powerpoints or reading captions or seeing still images so we said how do we make this as fun and engaging and immersive so we said why don't we take the student back to 1893 to see thomas mm -hmm. edison's first movie studio let's take them back and let them stand on top of a rostrum camera in 1963 for Disney's, one of Disney's productions, and take them literally back into history where they're standing there and feeling it and seeing it. Yeah. And we'll go back to the first question. It's all the same thing to mm -hmm. me. It's all, it, it's, it's the same thing as building little dioramas and building stop motion puppets. And we're just doing it with much better tools now. <laughs> The passion that you have for this field, it makes sense that would spill over into teaching and education. But sometimes when you get into the world of teaching and education, there is a certain structure in place that can be combative for a creative like you. So a couple questions here. At what point did you decide you wanted to become a teacher? And then how have you navigated that environment? And has it impacted your creativity and how? Great question. I stumbled into education i was i was actually the, the the quick the long and short of it is i was going to universal studios to rent a location for a movie i was shooting and as i went through the gates i happened to pass a a school which was the digital animation and visual effects school at universal studios and i had been hiring people and seeing some great work out of this school i passed through the gates saw the location and as i came back out through the gates I stopped in. I said, you know what? I just got to tell the owner of the school that they're doing something right. They're doing a great mm -hmm. job because as a production person, you get lots of people sending you their demo reels and typically it's garbage, garbage, garbage. <laughs> oh, that one's kind of good. I'll leave that one on my desk. Garbage, garbage, garbage. Oh, there's another good one. And that little pile starts building up on your, your desk of the ones that are kind of outstanding. And I'm a big believer in kind of paying forward gratitude. And I said, mm -hmm. these people are doing something right because... I say a majority of the ones that I'm looking at that I'm really liking are from this place. So I popped in, probably not what the person at the front desk usually wants to hear, which is, hey, can I talk to the owner? And they're like, oh. And the owner came out and I just said, hey, I just want to let you know you're doing something right because I'm, I'm really liking what I'm seeing out of the school. And we had a conversation. We really hit it off pretty well. It was really, really nice people who own this school. And they said, hey, would you ever consider 
being a guest director and, and directing mm. a, a, a project. And my forte at the time was live action visual effects. And I was like, that's kind of right down my alley. So I don't know, six, eight months later, they said, hey, we have an opening. Would you consider coming to do that? And long story short, I really enjoyed it so much. And that mm. led to a, a, a longer open-ended contract later on where I came back again and did it again for a while and then wound up just falling in love with seeing that spark in a student's eye when you know you help ignite that passion for them and impart that same kind of love for doing this it's it's very infectious amen certainly is that's what teaching should be about oh so so going back to your question about the hurdles you face so that's shaped a lot of what we are doing right now which is over the past a few years ago, I was a dean of academics at that school, so I got to see sort of from the administrative side. Yeah. We faced those hurdles as like a as I was a visual effects director there for a long time, and we got to sort of see those kind of hurdles administratively and the kind of process of what you're up against. And getting to see that from both sides is, mm. is was really very enlightening. But one of the things that helped shape the products that we're doing now is. I said, how do we solve those problems for administrators and for instructors and for the finance people and for accreditation people? How do we solve those problems and provide this engaging medium as well? So what we came out with was instead of worrying about curricula, instead of worrying about creating a whole new development processes, because that's the kiss of death to me, (laughs) Uh, the kiss of death for educational institutions is if you say, okay, we're going to embrace these new immersive technologies, we're going to write a whole new curriculum to to address this, and we're going to have a development team come in, you're done. Before you even started, you're dead in the water. And the reasons are because, number one, it's very costly. It's, mm-hmm. it's very time consuming. Trying to start that from the ground up, that process in a higher education environment takes so long that by the time you're done, even if you were successful at those other things, <laughs> it would be obsolete by the time you finished. So the approach mm-hmm. we took is instead of trying to economics 101, instead of trying to make a market for a product, let's make a product for a market. We've got a market who's willing to engage and wants to use these technologies. So instead, why don't we create a futuristic PowerPoint where they don't have to learn a new curriculum. They don't have to write any new curriculum. They don't have to do any development. We just hand them the tools Mm -hmm. and you teach what you already know how to teach. So you're teaching history rather than writing a whole new wild thing. Teachers have a lot on their hands to begin with. They don't have time to learn a whole new job field in development. And a lot of people don't want to learn whole new careers. (laughs) Instead, why don't we say you're teaching history, you're going to teach the Battle of Gettysburg. Instead of writing a whole new curricula and learning a new technological field, why don't we just hand you the tools so you put on a headset and now you are on the battlefield and now you just show the students what you Mm -hmm. already know. And that is a lot more, number one, it's kind of comforting for an instructor uh, in that I can just be free to teach and show the passion of that and the knowledge I have for the field. But also it's this whole new set of engaging tools that students love compared to, oh no, here we go again. Here's another slideshow that I'm going to fall asleep when the lights go out. Mm 
So, so when we think about productions and especially visual effects, it takes a lot of tech to do it in a believable way and it costs a lot of money. So you <laughs> saw that gap. What was your aha moment when you thought about bringing the VR film school into reality? This is not really an overnight thing. It has been an evolution from those times where I was a little kid trying to create worlds, learning visual effects when they first started. And I'm, I've always sort of been at the forefront and an early adopter of all these technologies from the implementation of digital audio, digital video, nonlinear, 3D, VR, motion tracking, motion control, all of these technologies. I've sort of just early adopted and been right at the front of those all along. As they've been piecing together, in my head, I, I'm sort of a, a tinkerer and kind of formulate <laughs> as I'm going along. And at first it was dioramas and model miniatures. And from there, when we got computers, I said, oh, I could build whole worlds in the computer and we could render those. But that takes 45 minutes to an hour per frame, maybe even mm -hmm. days per frame when you're dealing with high-end motion picture. As soon as I saw in 2009, Epic Games released Unreal Tournament Editor, I said, one day I'm sitting there in front of two monitors, one on a production doing a sci-fi, and this thing is taking 45 minutes to an hour per frame to render. And on the other side, I'm running around getting shot in the head by some five-year-old in real time in, a, in an environment. And I'm looking back and forth, and I said, this is where we're going right here. And I jumped full boat into developing how do we make this work for this. And instead of waiting 45 minutes per frame, we can actually move around in real time. And then when we got into real time, just a couple of years past that, I started working on, was one of the people helping to develop what now is called virtual production. Most people didn't know what we were talking about when we were trying to develop this stuff back in 2012, 2013. Um, but one day I put, I said, we could put on a VR headset and do location scouting. And the minute I put that headset on, I said, this is what I've been driving at since I was a little kid, wow. it, which is being able to think of a world and then be in that world. And this applies to so many things because I've done these kind of pre-visualizations for architectural, for uh, medical, for all different kind of industry, education, and it applies across the board. It, it, we are we are sensory creatures and we we just naturally kind of gravitate to being in an environment and storytelling. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We're going to pause here, but we'll be back next week on the Digital to Learn podcast with John Gress. We can't wait to continue this conversation. We'll see you then. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, Give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.